0: All right, Grace Community Church. We come now to the preaching of the Word of God as we worship the Lord together this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to call on the Lord and we're going to ask for His help this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today, Lord, and we thank You for this time. God, we thank You for Your faithfulness Week in and week out, Lord, as we gather together in your name, as we gather together around your word. God, thank you that you are faithful to give us what is needed. That you are faithful to strengthen the souls of disciples. And Lord, we ask for that this morning. God, we pray that you would restore our souls for your name's sake, God. We pray that you would be the Lord, our shepherd, that you would lift us up today, that you would strengthen us, Lord. God, we pray for that transformation that comes through the renewal of our minds. Lord, teach us your word in the power of the spirit. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right, we're back in Matthew chapter 10. This morning, and Jesus, the context is that Jesus has sent out his 12 apostles as an extension of his own ministry. He's sending them out to preach what he preaches. He's sending them out to do what he does. Cast out demons, heal the sick, preach the kingdom, demonstrate the kingdom. He gives them a very specific mission in Matthew 10 that they are only to go to the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, don't go to the Gentiles, not yet. This is a preparatory mission, part of the training of the twelve. And you can think of it as a prelude to the great commission to all nations that comes at the end of Matthew's gospel. In the rest of Matthew 10 that we're going to cover this morning, Jesus not only sends out his apostles, He teaches them what they are to expect as they go out preaching the gospel. Something interesting happens about a third of the way through this chapter that Jesus speaks about things that are broader than this initial mission to Israel. And you're going to see that as we read this text together. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 16. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. We've got a long passage to read. And so I want to invite everyone to stand this morning for the reading of the Word of God and follow along as we read God's Word together. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. Now, I told you about a third of the way through this chapter... Jesus is speaking about this specific mission to Israel and yet he starts speaking more broadly to the twelve. And I want to show you that first. We know that Jesus is continuing to instruct the twelve about this unique mission to Israel because look at what he says in verse 23. In verse 23, Jesus says, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, unbelieving Bible scholars um, have made a lot out of that verse that said that they say something like this. See? Jesus thought he was coming back in the life of his disciples, and he was wrong. Jesus prophesied wrongly that he would return, before the twelve apostles got through this initial mission to Israel and Jesus didn't therefore Jesus was wrong okay and that's wrong okay Jesus is never wrong Jesus is the righteous one Jesus is the Word of God speaks the word of God everything that Jesus says is true what this is a reference to in verse 23 is is Jesus is going to come in judgment. He's going to return in judgment upon Israel. This is a prophecy of Jesus' return to judge Israel. And this is a prophecy that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. And many of you have heard that date before, in 70 A.D. Um, This is a significant date for the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Jesus came in judgment upon Israel who rejected her Messiah. Jesus uh, came in judgment. Israel was judged by God for rejecting uh, the King of the Jews, the Lord Jesus Christ. The holy city was sacked by the Romans. The temple was torn down by the Romans. And still to this day, that temple has not been rebuilt. Israel has been under judgment. For rejecting the Jewish Messiah. Many Jews were slaughtered and many Jews went into exile. And so Jesus is continuing to instruct these 12 men that before you run out of evangelistic work in Israel, I'm coming in judgment upon Israel. So this is the immediate context in verse 23. Yet, in the same sermon, jesus speaks more broadly to the 12 and i want to show you that in verse 18 in verse 18 jesus tells the 12 they're going to be delivered over to courts verse 19 they're going to be dragged before governors before kings and to bear witness to gentiles and you're saying wait a second Jesus, you said don't go to Gentiles, and then you said you're going to bear witness to Gentiles. Like, wait a second. We're supposed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not Gentiles, but you said we're going to stand before Gentiles and bear witness to Gentiles. And governors and kings is a reference to Gentile Roman rulers. So Jesus is speaking more broadly in this chapter of suffering that's going to await them after this initial mission to the lost sheep. Of of the house of Israel. You see it again in verse 21. He tells them that they're going to face martyrdom. They're going to be delivered over to death. Now none of the apostles were martyred in this initial mission to Israel. There's something more broad going on here. And then in verse 22 he tells them that they must endure to the end to be saved. And that's not to the end of this initial Jewish mission. This is to the very end of their life they have to endure and be faithful to Jesus. And so there are broader principles in this chapter about persecution that are going to be fulfilled later in the New Testament as the gospel is taken to the Gentile world. And we see many of these prophecies that Jesus makes in Matthew 10 fulfilled in the book of Acts. As the church preaches the gospel to the nations and is drawn into conflict and persecution and even murder. And so Jesus in Matthew 10 is marking out this unique group of 12 men. And we saw two weeks ago that there are going to be others, a few others added to this group, Paul and James, the Lord's brother. They're going to be marked off to suffer greatly for the name of Jesus. Jesus. In other words, being an apostle is not only privilege, it's a heavy cost. They're going to bear the name of Jesus and they're going to suffer greatly for the cause of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9. Paul says that the apostles are made a spectacle to the world. He says this in 1 Corinthians 4 9, that they're the last of all men. Men condemned to death, they're a spectacle to men and to angels, a spectacle to the world. When Christ called the Apostle Paul to be his Apostle, one of the things Jesus said about Paul in the book of Acts is, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And that's what it means to be part of this inner group, is this unique role In the foundation of the church and unique suffering. Paul recounts vividly his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to what he says. Paul says that he suffered countless beatings. Think about that. Uh, We know very few people who have been beat for the gospel. Paul says countless beatings. Think about that. Countless times he says... I have been beat for faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He says, often near death, five times I have received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. That's that flogging that Jesus prophesied in Matthew 12. Three times I was beaten with rods and once I was stoned. Paul was part of this inner circle that was made a spectacle to the world suffered greatly for the name of Jesus. Most of the apostles paid the ultimate price. They died as martyrs in the cause of Christ for faithfulness to Jesus Christ, for faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. James was the first in this group to give his life for Jesus Christ. And we see this in the book of Acts, Acts, Acts chapter 12, that Herod has James the apostle put to death. He has, has his blood shed, and James dies a martyr, and faithfulness to Jesus. History tells us. That almost every other member of this group. Dies the death of a martyr. And we get this from two separate places. One is a church history written by a man named Eusebius. He's an early church historian. And the other is Fox's book of the martyrs. And there's long standing church tradition that the apostles of Jesus Christ died, they gave their life for the gospel. History tells us that Peter was martyred by the Romans. He requested to be crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross, and the tradition is that he thought himself unworthy to die in the same manner that Jesus his Lord died, that his master died. He requested to be crucified upside down. Thomas, tradition tells us, is said to have preached to the Persians and died a martyr in India. Tradition tells us that Thomas the Apostle took the gospel to India and was cut down faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simon the Zealot, tradition tells us, is said to have preached in Africa and been crucified for preaching the gospel. Andrew the apostle is said to have taken the gospel to Achaia. And died a martyr for Jesus Christ. Matthew is said to have preached in Egypt. And died a martyr for Jesus. Philip is said to have preached uh, in Egypt also. And died a martyr for Jesus. Paul, tradition tells us, is said to have been martyred under Nero. Died for. Died for Jesus Christ and James, the Lord's brother, tradition tells us is said to have been martyred in Jerusalem for faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 10 that these men would suffer greatly for the gospel. Not only did he send them out. He told them what they were to expect as they began to preach that gospel of the kingdom. And tradition tells us that these prophecies were vividly fulfilled in the lives of the twelve. This morning we're going to ask and attempt to answer this question. What can we learn about following Jesus from these men? From what Jesus says about these men, this, these twelve, what can we learn as followers of Jesus Christ. And this is an appropriate question for us to ask because the principles we find in Matthew 10 apply broadly to every age of the church of Jesus Christ. I want to organize our teaching this morning under three headings. Number one, there is danger ahead. In other words, Jesus instructs His disciples, that they are to expect danger uh, ahead of them. They're not to expect a comfortable or an easy life. Following Jesus is not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to feel easy. Jesus says, danger ahead, number one. Number two, you must press forward. In other words, Matthew 10 gives us exhortation as followers of Jesus that we must remain loyal to Christ we must remain faithful to Christ we must endure to the very end in loyalty to Jesus number 3 take heart danger ahead press forward and take heart Matthew chapter 10 gives us encouragements from God's word Of what we need our faith to grab a hold of. To have courage to stand. To have courage to endure to the very end. So we'll start with number one. Danger ahead. In the very first words that we read together. Jesus signals that there's danger ahead. He says I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, now you don't have to know a lot about uh, farm life to know that's a dangerous thing. Okay, uh, Sheep are defenseless. Wolves are dangerous. And Jesus says, that's what I'm sending you into. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now remember, the context here is missions. I'm sending you out with a message. I'm sending you out with a mission. And you're going to go out As innocent sheep in the midst of wolves. Christians are to evangelize a world, not that rolls out the red carpet for us, but a world that hates us. This is the mission. This has always been the mission of Jesus. Sheep in the midst of wolves. Danger ahead. Jesus wants us to understand that we will be vulnerable in this world. There is a glorious truth of the gospel, and we read it this morning, that through the death of Christ, we have peace with God. In other words, for every Christian, Jesus has delivered us from the wrath of God. It's completely gone. There's no more condemnation for for the Christian as it relates to the wrath of God. Jesus bore it all for us. Praise to his name. But Jesus wants us to understand that we have not been delivered, at least in this temporal way, from the wrath of man. We will face the wrath of man. We will not always be delivered from the wrath of men, and from the hatred of the devil. There is danger ahead for the Christian. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says this, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. you got to settle that on the front end. I don't know how he can make it any clearer for us that the Christian life is not supposed to feel easy. And Jesus even preaches this on the front end as he preaches the gospel. You remember how he closed the Sermon on the Mount as he says, The gate is narrow." And the way is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And part of coming to Jesus and being a Christian is counting the cost to follow Christ. Acts 14 verse 22 tells us through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. It must be so, brothers and sisters. Jesus says this so many ways in chapter 10. And this is why we're... Organizing it under these three headings because he just comes back to these things over and over. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Beware of men. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts. Verse 21. Jesus says, Brother will deliver brother over to death. Verse 25. He says, Verse 25, how much more will they malign those of his household? He says, you will be hated by all for my namesake. In verse 22, verse 34, listen, this is a commandment. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I remember that being such a shift for me. Reading the Bible, you know, and coming across these places that I've Never read before, never heard, you know, many people talk about these things. And and all of a sudden I had to create a grid for a Jesus who says I didn't come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't have that grid, but I'm but but I just just remember that reading God's word and says this is the real Jesus. The real Jesus says this. He came to make a division to, to 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 bust humanity into two separate groups. He didn't come to make peace. He come come to divide. Verse 34, Jesus is giving His disciples a realistic expectation of what is to await them as they go out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Verse 18, there can be flogging. Verse 22, they are expected to be hated by all. That means if you're the type of person that cannot, absolutely cannot stand it when somebody's upset with you and you want to please everybody, the Christian life's not for you. Because look at what Jesus is telling you. You're going to be resisted. There's going to be hostility. You're going to be hated by all for His namesake. For His namesake. That means you're going to do everything right and they're still going to hate you. Verse 23 Persecuted in one town after another. And those disciples are supposed to flee and keep preaching. Verse 21. The hostility that we are expected to face in this world can even include martyrdom. That that is so, so clear that we have not been delivered from the wrath of man. We can be killed as followers of Jesus. Danger ahead. Christian life is never intended to be an easy life. Now, not only does Jesus want you to understand that suffering and persecution await those who faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus, he wants you to know why. He wants us to know why there's going to be suffering. He wants us to know why there's going to be a conflict. And and the answer to that is because we identify with Jesus. That's why there's conflict. In verse 24, he says, um, the disciple is not above his teacher, nor is the servant above the master. In other words, you're going to get the same treatment he got. In other words, you're not going to get a better outcome than what Jesus has. Why? Because you are identified with Jesus. You're a disciple of Jesus. The same way they treated the teacher, they're going to treat the disciple. The same way they treated the master, they're going to treat the servants. We are in solidarity with Jesus. We're not to expect a different outcome than what Jesus received. And this also means that the world's hatred and the world's hostility to Christians is ultimately an extension of the world's hatred of Jesus Christ. Now, just as... These men are sent out to do what Jesus does. They bear the scorn that Jesus bore. You see this in John chapter nine, John chapter 7. Jesus actually tells us why the world hated him. And maybe you've never thought about this before. Of Jesus was the greatest teacher that ever was. He was was the most righteous man that ever lived. He was the only righteous man that ever lived. And so it's worth thinking about, why did they hate him? Why did they crucify him? I mean, if he's just, you know, this great moral teacher, and he actually tells us why in his word. John 7, verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. In other words, why did the world hate Jesus? Jesus says, because I testified against it. In other words, the world hated Jesus not because He came with these you know, great moral principles about we should love each other. They hated Him because He came as a prophet thundering the law of God, exposing the great sinfulness of man. He came as light, testifying against the world of darkness, he came exposing that the deeds of this world were evil. And he says, this is why the world hates me. Because I turned the lights on. Because I came as the light of the world and I exposed the true state of things. This is why the world hates Jesus. The light of the world. Those who are of the darkness hate Jesus the light. Now, this is a good time to remember that the context of Matthew 10 is missions. And so it's also worth thinking about, you know, what could possibly be wrong with a bunch of evangelist Christians going around sharing good news? What in the world could possibly be how in the world could that be trouble? Why would that be resisted? I mean, the gospel is good news. They're just coming and sharing good news. And Jesus is talking about hated by all, given over to death. And this is where the context is helpful. The world has never had a problem with a feel-good message that's preached in this take-it-or-leave-it way what I mean by that is you can even do that with the Christian gospel. You got, hey, here's some good things about Jesus. God loves us. God sent us Jesus. This is what Jesus did for sinners. Just want to share this with you. If you think this will be helpful for your life, take it. If you're not convinced, you know, leave it. I'm not the judge. I'm just setting, you know, these things before you. World has never had a problem with that. Okay. That's never been the problem. The problem is and has always been When the Christian gospel has been announced with authority. That's always been the problem. And so as these men went out in Matthew 10. Their announcement came in Matthew 10. With an announcement of judgment. You remember back in that last paragraph. Jesus says those who don't hear you. What do you do? He said shake the dust off your feet. This is a sign That this group is going to be cursed by God. God is going to curse those who reject the gospel. And you remember what Jesus said. It's going to be worse for Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's going to be worse for those who reject the gospel than it was for those in Sodom and Gomorrah who were judged by God. You, You start preaching that, you're in trouble. Okay? You preach a feel-good, take-it-or-leave-it, Jesus, no trouble at all. But you announce the gospel of Jesus Christ with authority, not take-it-or-leave-it, but if you reject it, you will be judged by God. The sparks fly, and they always have. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. It's not a natural thing. It's not a natural message. It's not... A message that we can announce faithfully in our own strength. It is it is a great mistake to start busting up the body of Christ in these different personality categories. Of man, this person's an extrovert. He's as, he's as bold as you know a lion. This person's an introvert. You know they're they're you know uh, have trouble you know even talking to their family. That is so wrong. Okay, the Bible does not do that. Every single disciple of Jesus is incapable of faithfully heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ without the Spirit of God. It's supernatural. We need power from on high to declare the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. This is why the the book of Acts connects the boldness of the preaching with the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need boldness. To preach the, the terrifying holiness of God. We need boldness to preach the great sinfulness of man. And we need boldness to preach the glorious sufficiency of Jesus Christ. There's no other way into the kingdom of God except through Jesus. Now, that's always been the problem. is The authoritative exclusiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us specifically in Matthew 10 that there are two institutions that we are to expect to cause perpetual problems for the Christian church. Both of these institutions have been created by God for our good, but Jesus tells us in Matthew 10 that they they can become so corrupted... That they actively stand in the way of the advance of the gospel. And the first is human government. And you see this in verse 17 and 18. Jesus says that you will stand before Matthew 10, verse 17. You will stand before governors and kings. This is reference to courts. This is judicial language. This is government language. This is government sanctioned persecution that the church of Jesus is to beware. Beware of this stuff. Beware of this. This has been the cause of the most fierce rounds of persecution that the church of Jesus has ever faced in the history of the church. When the government takes the sword and turns it against the church of Jesus Christ, it is one of Satan's fiercest weapons. And yet, in verse 18, Jesus calls it an opportunity to bear witness to the gospel. Not only government, Jesus also talks about the family can stand in the way of the advance of the gospel. He says this in verse 35. Verse 36, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, that's not what we are to normally expect in the Christian church. That, you know, our enemies are in our own house. But it can't happen. It can't happen. It's a beautiful thing when parents and children serve Jesus, when a whole family serves Jesus together. And that's what we ought to pray for. And we can trust God for that. Malachi 3 tells us that God desires godly offspring. This is part of God's will for Christian marriages is to raise up Christian children, Christian parents to bring up their children in in the knowledge of the Lord and the teaching of. And instruction of the Lord. However. The gospel can divide a family. And some of you have already experienced this. That, that those who should celebrate with you the most. Become the biggest obstacles in your way. To coming to Christ. And to following Christ faithfully. And Jesus warns us to beware of this stuff. In other words, this has always been the case. The gospel has always come in certain families with a sword. Setting father against son, mothers against daughters. And Jesus tells us that if this happens in the life of a disciple, it's an opportunity to display where your ultimate allegiance lies. Look at what he says in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Danger ahead, Jesus says. Number two, he also seeks not only to tell us what's coming... As though we were, you know, just getting a bunch of information. Okay, it's going to be difficult, got it. He's telling us those things so that we will stand in the hour of trial. That we will remain faithful to Him. In other words, prophecy is not this intellectual exercise. There's a moral dimension to it. We are to cling to Christ, be faithful to Christ. Even in the midst of persecution. Again, he says this in several different ways in chapter 10. Look at verse 19. He says, do not be anxious in how you are to speak. Verse 19. Persecution is an occasion to bear witness for the gospel. That's what he says in verse 18. Yet... One of the ways that we can be disloyal to Jesus in trial, in resistance, in hostility, is to become silent. That's one of the ways that we can not be faithful to follow our Lord. And Jesus says, one of the reasons that you can become silent is through a sinful anxiety about what am I going to say or how am I going to say it. Verse 19, Jesus says, Do not be anxious how you are to speak. We must be loyal to Christ. Verse 26, he says, Have no fear of them. In verse 26. Verse 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Not only can anxiety, but also fear can make you disloyal to Jesus. Do you see how big of a deal anxiety and fear are? It's that, you know, we know there's sins. Jesus gives you know, commandments all over the New Testament. Don't be anxious. Do not fear. But in this context, they can make us disloyal to our Lord. In other words, the fear of man can trump the fear of God in our life. We're to beware of this stuff. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. The most extreme form of persecution that a Christian can ever face is to be killed for Christ. That your body would be killed. That your earthly life would be taken from you. That's it. That is the trump card. That is the worst that could happen. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. In verse 28, Jesus relativizes the most extreme form of persecution that this world can ever throw at you. And he basically says this, they can only kill you. Now, I want you to imagine you go to a therapist and you tell them this thing that you're really afraid of. And I want you to imagine that therapist saying, can only kill you. I mean, that's the worst that can happen is you could die. And I want you to think, almost every one of us are asking for some money back. Can I get some money back? Like, that's not real, really what I was looking for. That's not really comforting. And look at what Jesus does. He takes the most severe form of persecution that can come your way, and he slides it in. He relativizes it. He slides it in this slide. He says they can only kill your body, but they can't touch your soul. And then he turns our face to the one whom we should ultimately fear, this eternal perspective, and he says, fear God alone. That's what you should really be worried about, not who can kill your body, but the God who you'll stand before on the final day and give an account of your life. The judge of all the earth, the one who can destroy soul and body in hell forever. God alone is the one we must fear. Now, context again is missions, proclamation, being faithful to herald the good news of Jesus. And this means that these are not just negative duties to avoid general anxiety and fear. Though Those commandments are in the New Testament. In this context, these are positive duties to not allow those things to stop you from proclaiming the gospel. The positive duty here is proclaim it from the housetops. Bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not just, yeah, I'm not anxious. I'm not fearful. It's I'm faithfully heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. This is loyalty to Christ in the midst of persecution. And he describes it in several ways. Verse 22, he says, you must endure to the end to be saved. Now, again, these are those, you know, phrases in the New Testament that if you're not careful, this stuff will catch you off guard if you've never read the Bible for yourself before. Because what you would expect Jesus to say is the one who endures to the end gets a better place in heaven. You tracking with me? But what he says is the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the opposite of that means if you don't endure to the end, you will be judged by God. In other words, endurance to the end is a mark of true salvation. And the book of Revelation comes and and grabs this warning, says it the different way. It tells us that the cowardly, those who forsake, those who turn away are those who end up in hell judged by God, and the ones who are with Christ forever are the conquerors. To the one who conquers, Jesus makes the promises. You must endure to the end, Jesus says, to be saved. And that means that there's no such thing okay, as this version of salvation that you prayed this one prayer this one time when you were 17... And you spent the next three decades of your life, if you're honest, caring very little about Jesus, very little about his word. And yet you can die and go to heaven when you die. That version of salvation is an invention of the American church. It's not New Testament doctrine. New Testament doctrine is when your heart is changed by Jesus Christ, you will endure to the end. You won't just cling to Him when you're 17. You'll cling to Him when you're 27. You'll cling to Him when you're 37. You'll cling to Him when you're 77. Your faith will persevere to the very end. Verse 33, Jesus tells us that if we deny Him, if we don't endure to the end, if we deny Him, the cost will be eternal. Let's read verse 33. He says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so I want you to see, you know, there's no turning back. When we say yes to Christ, when we follow Christ, there's no turning back. And if we deny him, the costs are great. And that's the language of eternal judgment. That we will be judged by God if we forsake Christ. The gospel. If we turn our back on Jesus Christ, Jesus will deny those who deny him. So he's calling us to faithfulness, to persevere. He says it again in verse 38. He says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And in a certain sense, nobody's worthy, you know, to be a Christian. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's the one who doesn't take up his cross and follow Jesus. There's no self-denial. There's no willingness to suffer for his name. That person cannot be called a Christian. They are not worthy of that name. We must persevere. We must press forward and continue to follow Jesus Christ. And to do this, we need courage. We need spiritual strength. And we'll spend the rest of our time considering where do we find that strength? Where do we find that courage to stand in the hour of trial? Where do we find that, en- that endurance that we need to cling to Christ to the very end? Because the answer can't be in our own flesh. That man, I'm going to follow. I'm never going to forsake. And this is like Peter boasting in his flesh. And Jesus says, oh yeah. <laughs> Before the rooster crows three times, uh, you'll deny me. Um, In other words, the response is not fleshly, bootstrap perseverance. We need real spiritual strength. Where do we find this? And all throughout this chapter, I want you to notice that Jesus is, it's like he's feeding our faith. He's giving us promises. He's drawing our attentions to truths that give us strength that give us courage, that help us fight the fight of faith. I have six of these, and I'm going to run through them as fast as I can. Number one, Christians are sent by Christ. In other words, if you find yourself in difficulty, one of the encouragements to be had for every Christian is that Jesus has sent you. You are not a victim of a bunch of accidents. Of a bunch of random occurrences. You are sent by Christ. And we see that in the very first words of verse 16. Jesus says, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, how comforting is that to know that when you find yourself in difficulty, Jesus is in charge. And if you say, well, I don't think that's very comforting. Your only other option is nobody's in charge. And that's terrifying. Okay? How comforting is it, though, to know that Jesus, this is just what you told me that I would be a sheep in the midst of wolves. And in a general sense, every Christian, every person who has been saved, has been sent by Jesus into this world. We are His, we belong to Him, we are His ambassadors. We go with the message of reconciliation. We go in His name. We preach His gospel. We've been sent by Jesus. We preach Him. And Jesus is the good shepherd who sends His sheep into conflict and even amongst wolves. And this is another glimpse of the wisdom of Christ, the ways of Christ. That His ultimate motive is not, I got my sheep, let me keep them as safe as I possibly can. His ultimate motive is glory to His name in all the nations. Sheep in the midst of wolves. Number two, Christians are one with Christ. Or you could say it this way, Christians are united with Christ. And I wonder how encouraging that is to you, to remember that you are joined to Jesus. That there is solidarity between you and Jesus. If your faith is in Christ, you are in Him. There's an indissolvable bond between you and Jesus Christ, no matter what you face. We are in Christ Jesus. Verse 20 tells us that... That uh, sorry, verse 40 tells us that whoever receives us receives him. In other words, we're so identified with Christ that when when others receive us and receive our gospel, they're really receiving Jesus. And the flip side of that is also true in the book of Acts, where Christ reveals himself to the apostle Paul. He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says. And you're thinking like, whoa, Paul's persecuting Christians. Jesus just so identified with Christians that Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And this is exactly what Christ is encouraging his disciples with in verse 25. That there's this bond between the servant and the master. We are one with Christ. We are the household of Jesus. If they malign Jesus Called him Beelzebub, that's a reference to Satan. If they did that to Jesus, how much more his household? And one way to hear that is, okay, they're gonna hate me. Another way to hear that is, did you, did you just say that we are part of the household of Jesus? Did you just say that we are identi- that we're so identified with Jesus that we're his household? That we've been made the family of God, the highest blessing of the gospel, union with Christ. Adopted by God, we get God as our Father in Heaven and we become His sons and daughters? How encouraging is this? In the hour of trial that you're not by yourself, that Jesus is with you? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. Our brother. When we meet difficulty... Even of the fiercest kind, we have an unbreakable bond with Jesus Christ. One of my favorite phrases in Thessalonians is the dead in Christ shall rise first. That even when we die, we're still in Christ. Death cannot break this bond that we have with Our Lord Jesus. At the very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus promises his evangelizing church. Last verse of his gospel. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Number three, Christians have the Holy Spirit. Again, these are meant to strengthen our faith. That not only does he send us into difficult situations... We're not left with our own resources. We've been given the resources of heaven. Look at what He says in verse 20. Jesus tells us that in our hour of crisis, the Spirit of your Father speaks through you. Man, what a comfort. The eyes of the flesh can see a thousand against one. But the eyes of faith remind us that God stands with us. God stands with His church. God's Spirit helps God's people to declare God's gospel. Now, this promise applies to the apostles in a different way than it applies to us. To the apostles, the Spirit of the Father speaking through them is a promise that they will prophesy. They will prophesy. They will speak the very words of God. But there's a principle in this promise for us that God will be with our mouth. God will be with our mouth. God's spirit will help us to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes this promise in verse 20 is misinterpreted and used as an excuse I don't have to study the Bible. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm not supposed to plan what I'm going to say. I just, you know, let it happen. You know, I just let the Spirit work spontaneously. Let it happen. This this promise in verse twenty is not given uh, to excuse anybody from neglecting the Bible. Okay, who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The same spirit that helps us to preach the gospel wrote a book. We don't have any license anywhere in the scriptures to ignore the Bible. What this is and it is an encouragement to us that God will be with our mouth. That the Holy Spirit will help us to proclaim Jesus. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Are you trusting in the Holy Spirit to help you to declare this glorious gospel, this powerful gospel? Trust in the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Number four, Christians are loved by God. I don't know a more comforting reality, a more comforting truth in suffering than this one right here, that God loves his people. And I say that because it's the exact opposite of the satanic lie in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hostility. The satanic lie sounds like this. You find yourself in difficult circumstances, and the reason is... The satanic lie goes, your father doesn't love you. He he says this to Jesus in the wilderness. He says, your father doesn't love you. In fact, you're hungry. You need bread. And he gave you a bunch of rocks. That's what kind of father your father is. And Jesus turns it. It's the exact opposite. In the midst of suffering. In verse 30 and 31, he begins to talk about the sparrows. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's knowledge. Verse 31, this beautiful description uh, of the God of glory, the uncreated God, says that the hairs of our head are numbered. And some of my favorite language in all the Bible, where you have these descriptions of the personal attention that God gives to every single human being. The hairs of our head. Are numbered. So you have this God of glory, this transcendent God, and He's upholding the universe by the word of His power, and yet at the same time, He's imminent. He's in your face. The very hairs of your head are numbered, and Jesus says you're more valuable to Him than a sparrow. Translation, your Father loves you. Your Father loves you. God loves you. God loves His people. Jesus loves His precious land. The Bible says that in the midst of suffering, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. Raise up Christians all around this church who can say in the context of we're being killed all day long and not turn and blaspheme God and say, God, I knew you didn't love me. But in the context of being killed all day long, we could say we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Number five. Christians will be saved. Christians will be saved. In verse 32, Jesus makes a pledge. It's a promise. It comes with all authority of heaven behind it. And He says, Whoever acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. He has signed His name To this promise that if you acknowledge Him, He will never deny you. If you come to Him, He will never cast you out. Christians will be saved. There is no one who comes to Jesus that gets cast out of the kingdom of God. You acknowledge Christ, He will acknowledge you before the Father who is in heaven. Now I ask you this, how much suffering is worth hearing those words on the final day? Of Jesus Christ saying, they belong to me. Bring them in. They're they're mine. I acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. And what a gracious king that acknowledges his rebellious enemies standing at the gates of heaven and acknowledges them as his very own. The ones whom he died for their sins, washes them clean in his own blood and takes them into his kingdom. Forever, What a gracious king. Number six. Not all reject the gospel. And Jesus says both things in chapter 10. He tells us that we will be hated by all for his name's sake. And yet we come to verse 41 and 42. And he says this. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is prophesying that some, as the church is scattered, proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, some are going to believe that gospel. They're going to receive Jesus as their king, as their Messiah. And they're going to even receive the evangelists that come in the name of Jesus. They're going to provide shelter and support for the laborers in the kingdom of God. Now, the rest of the New Testament gives a different name for this group of people. In verse 41 and 42, they're called the elect. Or in John's gospel, Jesus calls them the sheep that are not yet part of the the fold of Jesus Christ. They are destined to come in, but they haven't yet come in. Revelation 7 tells us that when all of the elect, when all of that group are gathered together, there's going to be a remnant, a number that no man can number from every tribe, from every nation, and from every tongue. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, That he endures all things for the sake of the elect. In other words, that's supposed to be a great comfort to us. That not everybody's going to reject us. That Jesus has his sheep. They're going to hear his voice. Those who are, are his sheep that are not yet part of his fold are going to be called into his kingdom. And that's what we're supposed to be about. That we do everything for the sake of the elect. That, num- that number that no man can number. That, that all nations bride of Jesus Christ. That, that whatever it takes mindset for the Lamb of God to receive the reward for His suffering. That's to be an encouragement to us in the context of suffering. Jesus says danger ahead. He commands us to press forward. And he gives us great comfort to take heart, to draw spiritual strength. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for ordaining your word to be a means of grace in your church. And Lord, we ask that it would be just that today, that you would renew Our love for Jesus Christ, that you would renew our desire to serve Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.